how's it going? <laughs> it's going well. How are you? Good. Good. You sound chipper this morning. Well, you said Marietta, and I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, we're being very formal. Everything that's in the show is in the show. Um, it's funny because you're at the office and I'm at home, and we have this whole podcast studio, and the idea was like, oh, we can record together now, and that'll be cool. And and here we are. But that requires us being in the same place at the same time. I know. Which is difficult for us at times. It is. You know, like difficult. every day. <laughs> <laughs> We've Oops, we're not messing up my audio here. We've been doing better. Yeah, so I, I do think that we should share, and this will be really geeky, nerdy for people, but we got a babysitter last night, which... <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, so I was telling my mom about it, and she's like, oh, are y'all going out to dinner? And I was like, no, we're, we're, we're going to teach Bible study together. <laughs> We get a we get a babysitter to go teach Bible study together so that we can both be there because we have to do rock paper scissors to determine who gets to teach. Or you mean who gets time away from the kids and, and bedtime routine? Either way you look at it, it's rock paper scissors <laughs> for us. It is. And yeah. now and now at our community of faith, we're in the Book of Acts, and you are like really ready to go because this is one of your favorites, isn't it? Well, it's it's not that it's my like favorite. That would be like something in the Old Testament, probably you know Samuel. If you listen to the old Bible bracket challenges, you remember that. Oh yeah, you were making that's your first round draft pick. We know. Yeah, know. but and and I mean, Acts made it far, and we had a whole uh, show because we had a lot of fans of Luke who listened to the show, and uh, that the title of the episode was "Sorry, Luke," and I think that was one of our top <laughs> shows of all time because people wanted to see what we did to kick out Luke, and then eventually acts in, in the bracket um i forgot who they lost to i'll, I'll go back and link it up in the show notes but those were fun shows because we we really did kind of go through our own conceptions of, of acts thomas and i and i, I think um david ray uh, alan might have been in such a great perspective too well he, he's uh, actually I, a sports fan so he gets the the, yeah, so he gets <laughs> the format so. and he tells you like oh well you've got the heavy hitters in there you know the big names yeah right right even though yeah and and thomas and i were like you know trying to be whatever and he was like no you know, this has got to be like a, like a fun fun show um so yeah so i i like acts because it is such a big part of the new testament but it's also a big part of our christian imagination or just kind of our cultural imagination you know when we we, we call it the acts of the apostles but it's really just about sort of that early group in jerusalem and then paul and and his his king uh but there are sort of cultural things like how does Peter die? Oh, well, he was, you know, crucified upside down. How did Paul die? Oh, they cut his head off and they threw his body over the wall in a basket. Those are all things that don't get mentioned in Acts, but the sort of wider, especially like my Bible-believing Christian culture from growing up, you know, we're certain of those things because it's part of apocryphal Acts, like the Acts of Peter or the Acts of Paul um, that didn't make it into the canon. So for me, I, I, I like Acts because there are all these other sort of competing texts out there and whether they knew about Acts of the Apostles and that was like the OG one and everyone was kind of riffing on that, like Luke and Matthew were doing with Mark, or whether uh, there was a, a certain attractive genre, uh, you know, in terms of why were people, why were communities and, and people writing and, and sort of uh, 
transporting, you know, like, like communicating with these, all these various acts that are out there that didn't make it. I think it's a really interesting uh, area of study. Plus what, what made it into the canon, I mean, the Acts of the Apostles itself, the book is really interesting how it starts in Jerusalem, you know, immediately after Jesus is resurrected, but Jesus hasn't ascended yet. Whereas in the, you know, especially in Matthew, you get kind of a different depiction of what happened there, you know, and, and instead of saying, oh, go back to the Galilee at the beginning, beginning of Acts, Jesus, while he's hanging out with his, uh, his, his followers and eating with them, it says, um, which is, you know, kind of a fun scene now with shows like 80 and, you know, all the history channel Jesus shows, you know, he always tears a piece of fish and eats it. And his disciples are like, oh my gosh, he just ate fish and he's dead. Uh, so zombie Jesus there is eating fish, but but they don't show kind of like the idea of the resurrected body or whatever. But early in Acts, we get that really cool kind of transition from Jesus to, you know, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call that, Holy Ghost. And um, that transition from Jesus being resurrected to Jesus ascending. And uh, for me, like Luke Acts, that's kind of the, the pinnacle of you know, what becomes like the cross. It's the idea that it's not just about Jesus's salvation event when um you know he, he's crucified and resurrected and his blood was shed for you and for me it's the ascension that means so much in luke acts and in paul also and i think that's one of the the tensions that we have today in in sort of modern pop christianity is we don't give credence enough to the idea that the cross stood for different things in different gospels and and in paul um, so Luke, Acts, and Paul, which make up of it, you know, a majority of the New Testament, you know, well over 50% of the text, not counting Ephesians and Colossians <laughs> um, and Hebrews, that those texts really do form kind of the, the basis for a lot of uh, modern understanding and misunderstanding of, of historical Christianity. So that's, that's my big plug for Acts. It's, it's a fun book. It combines narrative. Maybe there was no such thing as a novel yet, of course. But there are some fun narr narrative elements, as there are in Luke, but also some you know mythological treatments of Paul as maybe Hermes. There are some uh, interesting uh, associations of, of person, like first person going in, going into third person, going into second person. So you know, were these pastiches of texts that were put together by an editor, or was that a deliberate device used by the author? And don't give me a reader response, mumbo jumbo, and. Um, Anyway, I just think it's it's a it's a fun book that you can really get deep on if you want to spend some time on it. Oh my gosh, did you have like six cups of coffee this morning? Because that was like uh, a, I mean, we haven't recorded in a while, but wow, like you've been saving up because you introduced <laughs> not only the fact that there's more books called the Acts of we have the Acts of the Apostles in our canon, but there are more books out there texts that were circulating or stories that were circulating at least, but also um, multiple interpretations of the cross, as well as the introduction of Paul and Peter and the tension conflict there, as well as the ascension. That's just a lot. That's just a lot for early in the morning. You must have slept well last night. I worked on it, but those are the three, you know, big parts or big, big themes of acts that I, I really always try to get people to realize. And uh, for me as a Baptist, I love the idea of Jewish Christianity. So I'm always kind of bummed out that the Jerusalem cohort didn't win out over Paul, or maybe they did. And the Orthodox church over in, in the church of Rome sort of paved over that. Um, but one of my main okay, areas of studies, 
What? I know. Let's backtrack just a little bit, just a little bit. So the rest of us who have only had, you know, half a cup of coffee can catch up. <laughs> First of all, you know, we're in a pair setting here. And so the introduction of even the idea that there are other books that were circulating besides the books that appear in our canon is kind of revolutionary for people to realize. And I remember when we were having our discussion about the Gospel of Matthew, when you came in and taught, you said that there were other Gospels. And do you remember the looks on people's faces? That this was... Or, or that they, they weren't written all at the same time. Or know, they weren't written all the same, all of this thing. By a and white male named Matthew, right? Right, and they weren't eyewitness accounts and these kinds of things. And so we had those discussions when we were in the Gospels, and then you introduced the book of Acts and then introduced the idea that they were also other texts like this text that were circulating as well, some of them that have been lost, some of them we don't know about, but this was only one of the ones that was circulating that made it into the canon. Right, right. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that we, um, we, we have to, you know, really understand if we're going to wrap our head around, you know, even the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you know, I mean, last night, that was one of the big things that people were kind of shocked by is that Luke Acts was, is basically considered one text. And there's a little bit of pushback on that scholarly from, I think, some more fringe elements. But the idea that, you know, as these texts were circulating late first, early second century, uh, Luke Acts would have been, you know, one collection, one, one, one book of text, just like first and second Kings or first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles. And it's only later they get split up. So the inevitable question is, well, what's John doing in between Luke and Acts, if that's the case? And I'm like, well, why, why is Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament? He, you know, that wasn't the first book that was written. And again, that's like, wait, what? Um, but that's got the birth story. So that's got to be the first one. So, um, you know, when, when a, one of your prisoners made the wise comment last night, like, why are we starting in Acts if we haven't read Luke all the way through? The <laughs> yes. And also, well, and also I think it's, an, it's important for us to realize there are so many communities of faith that don't do this work. So Bible study is often a book study or just uh, thematic instead of going through the books of the Bible, which I find so ironic and it's so interesting. But we got to the end of Matthew and I had so many questions of, well, what about Jesus ascending? I was like, yeah, it's not here. And they were like, but, but Jesus ascends. And I'm, you know, and I, he was transfigured in Matthew there, right? Like, right. Before, that, right. But they are used to the idea that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus resur was resurrected, and then Jesus ascended. But what we don't often understand is the way interpretation history has played a role on biblical literacy, right? So you, I know you had this conversation with a parishioner on Sunday about we need more biblical literacy here. Right, exactly. And, and I think that's the case. So, but what but does think, that even mean, biblical literacy? Like, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to her? What are, you know, I've heard this in lots of different contexts. Well, your master's is in literacy, so. Not <laughs> biblical literacy, though. That would be your master's. So that's oh. why I'm referring to you. Religion in the Bible. Religion and literature, I would say. Uh, so the, first, I think most congregations don't talk about the Bible this way because, A, they're afraid. The leadership is afraid that if they uh, start these kind of conversations, people are going to say, does my priest or pastor or minister really believe this stuff? Like what, I mean, how can they say that the shepherds weren't there, the nativity, and, you know, along with the wise people and that those are from two different books because, you know, all my life and my nativity that looks like a barn, I've had 
little white baby Jesus with, you know, beautiful blonde hair surrounded by shepherds and wise people who were there at the beginning. You know, that's got to be the historical thing. That's what I remember. And you don't, there, there's a, a real and, and clear and present and, and I understand like kind of a understandable uh, 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 unwillingness to kind of rock the boat <laughs> when it comes to saying, hey, you know what? It wasn't a barn. The wise people didn't get there for a few years. There might not have been three. Their names weren't this. They weren't from Ethiopia and Saudi Arabia. And just like, you know, the end of Matthew is a little different than the end of Acts. And don't, let's not, get, I mean, the end of uh, Luke, and let's not get started on Mark or, you know, sort of bro Jesus and John who knows he's going to get crucified, who is basically kind of not feeling anything on the cross. It's like the life of Brian, you know, at the very end when they're singing, always, you know, be on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. Um, so you don't want to, for, for the pastors and the and church leaders who do know this stuff, there's an unwillingness to rock the boat because you got to get money and you got to get paid. On the other hand, seminaries do a terrible job of educating, and I'm speaking grossly, generously, or in, in generalities, do a terrible job of, of really educating lifelong learners and it's like, okay, we're going to cram in two sets of Hebrew, two sets of Greek. You know, here's Old Testament 101. Here's New Testament 101. Here's these core classes you have to take. Here's your preaching classes. Uh, here's your counseling classes. And, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll keep up with some of this historical critical stuff or, you know, even read a response stuff or just academic journaling type stuff. You know, keep up with the scholarship. No, we don't, we don't care about that. But let's focus on your PCC side. Let's focus on, you know, you being a, a servant leader. And I think those are wonderful things, but, uh, you know, I think there's been a, a real and, and needed shift away from academic heavy seminaries and divinity schools towards something that's much more touchy feely, um, much more on the spiritual direction side. And again, I, I think there's a healthy balance to be found there for ministers and clergy, but um, there's also not a real drive to create lifelong learners coming out of seminary. Not to mention student loan debt and, uh, you know, all the hectic pace that you have to go through as a seminary. And especially if you're second career or, you know, if, if you're not coming straight in from college and you're 22 years old, whatever, which most people aren't these days. So um, I, I think all that kind of combines into just, you know, going with the flow and saying like, yeah, just put the wise people there in the nativity. Who cares? You know, it's, it's, it's part of the story. Let's go watch Charlie Brown Christmas for our youth retreat this Sunday. So what you're describing is actually, a if we're talking about tensions between, in the book of Acts, there's also a tension that exists right now between the academy and the parish. And what you're describing is something that as someone in seminary who was going into the parish, I always knew I was going into the parish. There were kind of two tracks that you could take. You could take pastoral studies or you could take um, biblical studies. Biblical studies was the path for people who were going on to a PhD who were interested in the academy and teaching at a seminary or pursuing even more studies in religion. Bibl uh, pastoral studies then had a lot of the same coursework, except we had additional coursework in uh, life and work of the minister. How do you schedule your week? How do you make sure that you have time to read and prepare a sermon while also balancing the administrative tasks, the counseling tasks, 
and also the budgetary tasks that exist in the current context that is the institutional church. And a lot of, uh, and you'll see it on religious Twitter, a lot of the people who are in the academy uh, kind of negate the experiences of the people who are in the parish because, you know, they, the, the perception is there's not enough time for someone who is serving a parish to keep up with academic research, to keep their hands in that. Um, which, and is, then, which is terrible. I mean, like, would you trust a doctor who's like, yeah, I, I went to med school about 30 years ago, and I, I still know how to cut into your body and pull out your appendix. It'll be fine. Well, right. So, but the other real thing is that there are many denominations where there is no requirement for additional professional development for a pastor. Yay, Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so there's and not a definitely no training. money. <laughs> right. right. Or if there is training, the training is on these things that are plaguing the institutional church right now. Boundary training, uh, child protection policy training, uh, safe church training, safe sanctuary training for people who are, you know, expressing or exploring their sexuality. How do we do that in a way that allows that person to continue to grow and learn instead of feeling less uh so and, and it's so is- needed but my, my whole thing is like okay so i'm uh, i know people are going to say well y'all went to you know small southern you know primarily protestant baptist schools i did for my second round of, of seminary where i did pastoral studies and i hated those classes on like budgeting or let's talk about how to schedule your week as a pastor or let's talk about church administration flow like that's all stuff you learn on the job i, I love the the biblical studies classes and but also went to Yale Divinity School and yeah it was a, a incredible experience and you could really dive deep into the academic side and half of us were going into the parish and half of us were going into the academic side to you know or to pursue a PhD at least and some of those people are still pursuing PhDs but the idea that um, this is you know just for you know small backwater seminaries or whatever I, I think that's a, a real um, misnomer there too. But I think, um, yeah, I was going to say on that point, I mean, it's an excellent point you just made, but I think especially for people like you who are coming in from a tradition that, you know, I mean, you came in as a Southern Baptist where women could not be church leaders. You couldn't be a, a, a pastor. So, right. and your, your religious education, I'm not saying it was flawed, but you came from a certain lens and a certain perspective. So to hop straight from that into let's figure out how to budget your church after taking Old Testament 101, maybe New Testament 101, and one course of Greek and one course of Hebrew. Now you're all set. So let's, you know, now let's figure out how to run a church. It's like, no, no, you, you got to have, you got to actually learn the text before you hop into the, the other side of things, I think. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the school that I went to, I actually had to take two semesters of each language, which is not common for pastoral studies. In fact, many programs only require pastors to take one semester of either Hebrew or Greek. Right. And so my requirements were more rigorous than a lot of places in pastoral studies. In addition to that, I had a lot of the same requirements as biblical studies because of the way the program was set up, but that is not the norm. And I think the other thing that you have going on is that we have a lot of people who have PhDs who there's no room in the academy for them. And so they're having um, kind of a, a similar experience to pastors who are going into the parishes and like, I can't even get to biblical literacy because of all of the other stuff I have to get through in a week. 
I have to approve the menu for Wednesday night church. I don't know why I have to do this, but apparently this is the pastor's job or I have to find what's smelling up the church because that's apparently the pastor's job too. Or I have to find a new cleaning person because our cleaning person has just quit. And so your days fill up with these, in many ways, non-theological tasks that can then burn you out. And actually, this is a huge problem in the ministry is that we do have young pastors who are burning out because there's so much that are that's on their plates. Because churches are trying to save money on budgets and more of the jobs that used to be done by other people are now being placed on the pastor's desk. In the academy, you have a situation where people are pursuing their PhDs and then they are getting adjunct positions instead of tenured positions or even positions that could lead to a tenure track in the world of religion. And so they're finding that after they have done this work, they have dedicated themselves to the rigorous study and to the academy. There's no room in the academy for them and they can't support their families with it. So there is a separation between the academy and the parish that still exists, but also young professionals who are going into both are ending up burned out or doing something else. So I just wonder, you know, what's the future of the academy in your opinion, or what's the future of the parish? Do we need, you know, more religion professors who are doing interims in parishes to raise biblical literacy, or does that not allow space for young ministers to take on parishes and get the experience that they need. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it really depends on the context and you can listen to episodes like one through 150 of this podcast. If you want to get uh, you know more per- perspective on the academics <laughs> side of it, because Thomas, this is one of his, uh, you know, main crusades was to get people to realize like this thing is falling apart and uh, we got to do something y'all. Um, it's, and that was a fun tenure. 10 year journey with, with Thomas uh, over his pursuit of a PhD and, and then a, you know, an academic job afterwards. And you see what, it, what that got him. Um, so when we, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say like uh, on the parish side, I, I think we've got to do a better job. It, it's the church is in crisis, whether you're Baptist or Catholic, um, especially those two, but in, in terms of everything in the middle, there's still a lot of uh, folks who want to live like it's 1985 and then you have folks who want to live like it's 2025 and i think both sides have i'm not i'm not going to be a both sider of course i'd side with the people who want to push ahead i'm just saying you've got a, a rather large sort of group of people who are becoming more advanced in years who had church a certain way they want to make church great again and there's this idea that well we can get these young people back if you know let's let's have a nine o'clock you know, uh, drums and, and guitar service, or let's let people wear blue jeans without giving them a hard time in, in service, or, you know, let, let's, uh, do we need a nursery or how does that work? Or let's, let's shut down our nursery because we, we don't have any kids and just let them bring them, bring them into worship. That's fine. You know, you get all these sort of quick fixes without really looking theologically at what is the church? Why is the church here? Why is our church here? You know, why is our church in our denomination here? At this point, it doesn't need to be here anymore. Like, have we served our purpose? Do we need to merge? Do we need to move? Do we need to reorganize? Like, what what do we do here? Yeah, okay. and on top of that, you have all of these people who are writing about the church or writing about religion. And so a big shift that I've seen since I was in seminary is that even 
for kids, you're studying not the Bible, but you're studying curriculums or you're studying books that people have written about faith and spirituality, but actually people don't know the Bible. Right. And you yeah. think, that's, okay, that's always this, my thing. This, this is the cornerstone of our academic studies and also our parishes. And yet people don't know it. They'll recite things that they've heard or arguments that they've heard about social justice issues, but they haven't actually studied it. And what we did last night where we were gathered around two tables smushed together is for me, what the church is about is trying to figure out what does this mean for us now? Well, that's definitely the case in Acts, you know, it's like, okay, well, Jesus has ascended. So what do we do next? And you get the argument between James and Peter. And yeah, do we stay here in Jerusalem? Is this this just for the Jewish community? Is this a movement that is going into all the world? What what is going on here? What is going on? And see, that's where it all went wrong. If we had stayed Jewish Christian and we stayed a sect of Judaism, uh, the world would be a paradise. It it would have completely changed the world. And uh, the kingdom of God would be here. Hakuta Matata. We'd all be frolicking with animals. There would there would be lions laying down with with baby deer <laughs> and everything would be all right. It would be like constant Bob Marley. There would be no conflict between the Academy and the parish. They would just flow back and forth easily. Yeah. Yeah. Donald yeah. Trump would not be president. It, it would have been a, a, a amazing situation. So on that note, Thomas and I used to do this thing every so often where we would have people write us questions and I would co- like collate all of these questions because we got people who wrote us by a text. Somehow they got our, our mobile numbers. Don't text us. Uh, they would write us on Twitter because they would slide into our DMs and say, I disagree with you on this point. What blah, 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 blah. We didn't answer those questions as much. But then we got a lot of emails because we are emails on the website, but also, um, you know, things like Facebook Messenger. People write us all the time. And people still do. Like, people are still finding the shows and uh, listening and, and sending in questions because we used to really encourage that. We, it used to be a regular part of the show. And since we've uh, not done one in a while. I thought it might be fun. And since you're a new voice, relatively, uh, I mean, not really, but since you're a new full- yeah, I was going to say, I'm not Thomas, nor do I have a PhD in religion. So let me just uh, defer all the questions that were to Thomas and you to you. <laughs> no, I have some for you. And then I have some that- Oh, for Yeah, me. I have some. Uh, yeah, we've got some collected that that we can both answer that- I guess I was a guest, a guest uh, host a couple like, of different times. So. Like 2011, 2012, like way back. You and then we did a little run where you and I did a did a revitalization of the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was like okay. 2015. So yeah, you, you've been here for a while. Uh, don't call it a comeback. You've been here before. All <laughs> right. So my first question for you, Mariana. So I'll go and then you can go. How's that sound? I'll ask you a question. You ask me a question. We'll see how I far mean, we these are get. just going to be about anything. I don't know what's coming. So it's not necessarily about acts that we were just talking about. Right. Oh, great. Okay. And, and you get, oh, let, let's say you get like five minutes tops because we, we're, we don't want to bore people with, with long, lengthy Sam answers. All right. Number one, why do you insist, Mariana? There are numbers. So there, there's more than one. Okay. Okay. Here we go. I've got about 10 total. So we'll see how oh many we Oh my gosh. Okay, you should have warned me. So I could have had a cup of coffee here. Number one, the coffee's free. It's amazing. Now we pay like a lot of money for that coffee. Number one, why do oh, you insist? Why do you uh, message Greg and tell him to bring you coffee? That's our intern. <laughs> That's what the interns are for. Why do you insist that Ephesians and Colossians were written by Paul? Why do I, ins- do I insist that? You, when you I, preach, when you preach a, a Colossians, but especially Ephesians, you say, I was like, have, have I as, said this as, on? 
as Paul says, as Paul says, and, and it, it's like fingernails on the chalkboard for me, speaking of biblical literacy. So anyway, I'll, I'll let you answer, answer that question. Oh, I don't remember insisting upon this. So, so uh, you're, you're not going to answer the question based on the validity of the question? No, I, I think that the way I say it is that the textual assertion is that it's Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, that the sender is textually Paul, which is how it appears. Um, and I think sometimes a sermon isn't enough time to uh. unravel all of that. And, and everywhere, everywhere that I have been a pastor, we have a Sunday school or a Bible study that follows up the sermon in order to dig deeper into some of these things. Um, you know, we, we have a, a friend that says what didn't make it into the sermon, you know, that's his blog because there's, as somebody who prepares and preaches every Sunday, there's so much that you want to put in there and there's a lot that you have to leave out. And that's the hardest part I think about preaching. But I can remember when I was doing just pulpit supply and I was just taking one Sunday at different churches all around Western North Carolina. And I thought I have got to get everything in here that I want to say about this passage and also as a way of introducing myself as a preacher to this congregation. And I think one of the beautiful things about pastoring is that you can actually kind of do some sweep up or you can do some continuation in a sermon series. And so one of my favorite things is that I kind of diverged from the lectionary and I did a whole sermon series on James, which is something I swore I never was going to do because in my Southern Baptist upbringing, um, this was very common to do a sermon series that would last um, 18 months, which is kind of like your Sunday school or Bible studies where you have uh, the book of Acts lasting two years or something like that. But I swore I never was going to do it. So yeah, I think the assertion is not that it's definitely written by Paul, but that the text sender, the sender in the text is Paul, an apostle of Christ. All right, I'll accept it. But you're gaslighting your congregation. All right. So it, it's a Pauline tradition, right? That's that's an, and mm. then that's something that I would unpack like why is Paul's name in there if Paul didn't write that or if we're pretty sure Paul didn't write that, why would Paul's name? And then we can get into the tradition of writing in someone else's name and how that's not plagiarism, <laughs> which is actually one of my favorite discussions. Or as Bart Ehrman says, a forgery. Yeah. You know, he has a book called he Forgery that talks about this. He it's says great it book. is forgery yeah. or it isn't forgery. It is forgery. And, and he, but he talks about forgery in the ancient world. It's, it's, it's one of his. Right. I mean, I, I love all of his stuff or I like all of his stuff. But it, it, I think it's one of his best like pop religion books. You should listen to it or read it. it it's great on the audiobook too. Um, which is interesting because if we are talking about our political situation, which I know you and Thomas got into some, so I feel comfortable saying this, but we're talking about someone who has just come forward saying that he had, he was talking on behalf of the president and then the president will claim, no, that those weren't my words probably. And it's right. so the idea of like who gets to speak for someone else or who, who certain names bring authority to the words that you're saying. Yeah. I don't know that guy as Peter says. Right. So this is, this is interesting, I think, in our political context and climate right now, too. All right. So I'll, I'll go with a question. Uh, what is my favorite religious text and why? 
And that was. Oh, that's a question for you. Yeah, that was addressed to me. Well, if you listen to Bible Bracket Challenge, it's First Samuel. Well, they said religious text. They didn't say biblical text. Oh, okay. My favorite religious text, and I know this is kind of passe. I'm a child of the 20th century, and the introduction is by Yates. I'm sorry, problematic, but it's the Getting Jolly uh, by Rabindranath Tagore. What? Uh, Yeah, I I like I I like the I like the whole thing, but you don't know Tagore, but it's uh, number 11 of the getting jolly is one of my favorites leave this chanting and singing and telling of beads whom dost thou worship in this lonely dark corner of the temple with doors all shut open your eyes and see your god is not before thee he is there where the tiller is tilling the ground the hard ground and where the path maker is breaking stones he is with them in sun and in shower and his garment is covered with dust put off thy holy mantle and even like him come down onto the dusty soil deliverance where is this deliverance to be found our master himself has joyfully taken upon him the bonds of this creation. He is bound with all of us forever. Come out of thy meditations and leave aside uh, thy flowers and incense. What harm is there if thy clothes become tattered and stained? Meet him by the stand and stand by him in toil and in sweat of thy brow. I love that one. That was uh, transformative to me when I was a wee young lad. And then, well, this, is, this is interesting because I thought you would have said Epic of Gilgamesh because this is the first religious text that you gave me to consider and the first time that my kind of canon of what was religion and religious text was expanded yeah but i mean and and, and something our 12 year old actually is is studying right now they school, are which is he, kind of fun he starts canaan form next week uh and then getting jolly 37 i thought that my voyage had come to its end at the past limit of my power that the path before me was closed that provisions were exhausted and the time had come to take shelter in a silent obscurity. But I find that thy will knows no end in me. And when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. That's a hell of a line. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders. Those are, those are my two like, favorite quite religious texts. There's also Wendell Berry's uh, Mad Farmer Liberation Front, which I won't read. But at the bottom of all my websites that I build and design, I put like a secret piece of code in. So if you're listening and you're a client, you got a secret piece of code in there. And it's got the whole text, but it highlights practice resurrection at the end. It's mm-hmm. more of a political statement, but it's also very theological. Uh, be like the fox who makes more tracks than, than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Yeah. Practice resurrection. I love that. So that's, that's my answer there. But yes, uh, Gilgamesh and Anuma Elish are, Elisha are very uh, important to me. But I, I gave that to you because... I was trying to open your eyes and I think we had a conversation about like Genesis or something. And I was like, you know, there's some other stuff out there. So that was that. And I was like, no, I don't know. So speaking of and that. I can, re- so I can remember ahead. reading it and be like, wait, what? There's other people and flood stories and what? And resurrections and. And resurrections and but other gospels and other acts. Like it was a lot for me to take in. I remember. It didn't come all at once. I mean, like we spread it out over a few days. Number two. My, <laughs> no, you my like second, two hours. That was it. At, at that Mexican restaurant. My second question for you, what non-Christian or non-biblical tradition or practice do you freely admit to having as part of your personal faith or your expression of faith? So like when, you know, people might see you doing something that's, you know, quote, non-Christian, what, you know, what do you do regularly? Like some people might say yoga or meditation, uh, you know, something along those lines. 
Well, that's interesting because when I was growing up, like yoga and meditation were not allowed. That was the Eastern religious tradition. And if you did yoga or meditation and, you know, I was raised in conservative evangelicalism in the 1990s, that was on your way to becoming a Buddhist. And it was like a gateway drug. And so that was not a part of practice or included in our religious community at all. In fact, was taught against but it's interesting now because some of those same conservative religious traditions are now ha offering yoga classes and meditation and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, wait, I thought that was like, you know, we were banning Disney. Why are we now incorporating all of these things? Um, so for a long time, you know, I didn't believe I'm using air quotes. You can't see, but believe in yoga or meditation as a way to access the Christian God. If you, man, this is just so full of generalizations and fundamentalism, but that's where I was. Right. So I didn't believe that's a way you could, um, find God or find yourself. And so when I started to do those things, it felt very revolutionary to me, even though upon researching and digging a little bit, like these are practices that have been part of the Christian tradition, especially the Eastern church for a long, long time. So I don't know if that's, that is a religious practice, but it's something that I did not include. You know, well, and, there was, and, and you come out of a, a, there was prayer, there was Bible study, and then there was accountability partners like though and worship. Those were like the four things that you did to access God. Accountability partners. <laughs> that sounds dirty. So that there, is a whole nother like, episode <laughs> slash book. There was a, I mean, you, you come out of a tradition that's very iconoclastic. So you know, in, in a traditional Baptist church, there are no pictures. There, are, there's no artwork. There's, you know, the pulpit in crosses. the middle. Crosses, yeah. No, there's no crosses. There might be a cross, but there's definitely no crucifixes. In a lot of Baptist churches, there's no cross because it's an icon, um, and it's a very the white. American flag is there though. Not in every Baptist church. Just the Southern Baptist churches that subscribe <laughs> to that, and not in every Southern Baptist church. Uh, yes. So I was going to say, in your version of the Southern Baptist tradition. You've got an American flag. You've got the Christian cross. You say pledge allegiance to the Bible. All three of those things, which are and the Christian flag. Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, yeah, pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and make it and yeah, the Bible and the and I the did, pledge of allegiance to the flag. Yeah, Thomas and I talked about about the pledge of allegiance to the flag. We got oh, to the to the uh, Bible. And we get a lot of comments on that. People are like, really? But I still remember it. You know, I pledge allegiance. Oh to yeah. The Bible. I make a, a lamp into my feet, a line to my path, and where God's holy word. Light from true light. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, so those things are things that other, even Protestants would look on and say like, that's not Christian. <laughs> like, what, right. That's right. So some of the practices that I would have considered religious practices growing up would have been considered. So I just think it's interesting. Like we all, yeah, we all have our things. Yeah. Yoga and meditation were seen as big no-nos so, when I was a kid. So yeah. And, and the other thing I will say that was considered a big no-nos that I've also included now in my religious practices are prayer beads. That was very Catholic and very not Baptist. And so that was also not a thing um, that was encouraged, but something that I use in my spirituality now. Yeah, I mean, plus you do all the tarot card reading and the astrology thing, and you're always checking your chakras. And <laughs> it's very interesting. You do a whole podcast about that that no one knows about uh, on this show, but we'll, we're going to link to it. You should go listen to Mariana's other podcast. It's called The Minister and the Mystic. And uh, it's it's good stuff. They, they, it's not it's not 
you know, an academic yeah, so, exercise, but it's, it's fun. Well, so you've, so you've done that, you know, I do have kind of ritualistic practices for, uh, the full moon, the new moon, uh, the solstice. See, see this is what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> Let's talk about your witchcraft. Since you just opened that door, I guess I'll, uh, go ahead and confess it to this whole community and audience too. Your parents aren't listening. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, when I see you outside and you've got like the cat's urine in the bucket and you're Okay, like, okay, okay. That is not accurate. I you're like, it's a full awesome. moon. And then you strip all your clothes off and start painting your body. I'm like, what are you doing? Like the neighbors, it's, this is not okay. <laughs> the, the fence is not high enough. Yeah. Um, all right. So my next question. Why two. are you asking yourself these questions? Did I not? Can I ask you a question? Here, you've got the document. Do you see the, the document? At the bottom, oh, yeah. questions okay. for Sam. Okay, yeah. So pick a question. You can't. We're not gonna have time to do all five. So be, be no, 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 ambitious. No. Well, we already talked about the academy and the prayers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's just skip that one. Sorry, whoever so, sent in. On your um, how did you embark on your journey of spiritual and religious awakening? Because you, <laughs> and this was a this is something that I've gotten from a lot of people who listened to the episode that you and I did, where we talked about kind of our upbringing. Um, and you talked about the fact that you didn't go to church. Your family didn't go to church. And you, at 13, had this kind of religious awakening. How did that start? Where did you get the idea of going to church? Yeah, and I've talked about this on the show before for longtime listeners. Um, good question. I, I know who sent this in. Thank you for sending that. Uh, and they're going through their, their own faith journey, if you will. So it, it's kind of pertinent. Or deconstruction, faith Finally. deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, effectively like, yeah, we didn't go to church. I grew up in a small Southern town here in South Carolina of about 5,000 people and about 3000 people. And everybody went to church on Sunday mornings on Sunday mornings. We would either go ride on dad's boat, go fishing, or I would ride my bike around the neighborhood. So I remember being like my middle daughter's age, like around eight, nine years old, riding my bike and seeing like one of my friends who's now married to my cousin. It's like a Willie Nelson song. Uh, driving down the road with his parents, and he was in the back seat, and he's like waving at me as he drives down uh, Bluff Street in Mullins. And uh, I'm on my bike, and I'm like, that's kind of weird. You know, he's all dressed up. Like, what, what do they go do there? So I was always very curious about, like, the, the expression of going to church, and, like getting up and getting dressed up and getting in a car with your family, because I never really saw my parents dressed up, like, growing up. I, I mean, the first time I ever saw that was, like, high school graduation type stuff. I mean, we, we were people of the earth. Tagore like <laughs> was talking about. Um, so when my parents would come up to like college stuff and they had to dress up, you know, they would always be like, so we're going to go buy some clothes. What, what should we, you know, tell dad what to, to go buy a belt. What are, yeah. What are people wearing? Yeah. You know, and it's, so when I got to college, I, I ditched all my, my overalls and, you know, my, my Jack Clampett wear it and put on like, you know, slacks and never wear blue jeans or anything like that. Cause I was, trying to be something. Um, so anyway, so I, I saw my friends doing that. And I remember in fifth grade, people or we would go have recess after lunch. And then we'd come back and Miss Page would read uh, from the Bible while we in had a like, public school. Yeah. While we had like oh, rest gosh. time. Whoops. <laughs> so, but she would read these stories from the old Testament. And I thought it was so interesting because my preschool when I was like four or five or whatever, uh, was Miss Roark, and she was a Holocaust survivor, and she'd come over and somehow got into oh. knowledge. And she was Jewish; she still had the, you know her stamp and everything. And she uh, she would tell us Bible stories, and we would sing songs and Yiddish songs and and Hebrew songs. 
So I would come home, you know, just fascinated by these stories of Samuel or, or the, you know, the, the stories of, of Jonah or, or, you know, Samson. And uh, for me, the Old Testament kind of became this fantasy land. And, you know, like in third grade, we had to make a game. So I made a board game based on Greek mythology and Bible mythology. And I didn't know anything about the Bible. Uh, so I had to do my own little research. So for me, it was kind of like this work in progress. And my mom has this tape of me where I'm reading Psalm 23 into the tape recorder when I'm like five years old or six years old or something, because I'd memorized it because I thought it was kind of neat. And Miss Roark probably played a thing in that. So all that to say, it's not that I wasn't exposed to the Bible. We had two books in my home growing up. One was our family Bible, you know, the big, huge one with everybody's name. And the other was Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. So really, yeah, oh and that's gosh. the only book I ever saw my dad read. Never saw my dad read the Bible, but I saw him read Art of the Deal. And uh, I was fascinated by that. Um, so all that to say, we had a, a death in the family. My great grandmother died when I was 12. And we started going back to the church for like meetings and stuff with the family to handle the funeral. And I just, it was like the first time I'd really been inside of a church because I'd gone with friends every now and then, but it was very it wasn't a city where we or town where we did like big church youth trips. And when we did, they were very non-missional. So like now, you know, every church is a youth, you know, ski trip or whatever. And they, you know, invite your friends. Like I was plum pickings for whoever wanted to be, you know, missional. I was going to say like, you would have been my target area. Like I would, I would have been such a popular kid saved because he definitely doesn't go to church. Yeah, I mean, I would have been like the bad boy, you know, non-church going. I mean, here I was guy. trying to convert Catholics, you know, and it, that's, that's a <laughs> right. tough, tough sell, but you. I know, I know. I was, I was ready. I was like, take take me, take me, Lord, here I am. <laughs> uh, I remember once we, we drove by the, the one Catholic church, which is a small little church outside of town, uh, but it was the only Catholic church in our community, in our county even. And uh, I asked mom, I was like, so what do the Catholics believe? How are they different from other Christians or other people or whatever? And she said, oh, they, they worship the baby Jesus, not the adult Jesus, which. Oh, see, and mine was, they worship Jesus' mother. No, <laughs> oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> mother instead of Jesus. It's so and interesting. Like, oh. So all that to say, uh, you know, got dunked on the same day as my, my father. We got baptized together because uh, he had been a Methodist when he was young, but he lapsed and not gone back to church. His dad died young. So I think there was some bitterness there. So we got baptized together. Dad became a very involved in the church and deacon, head deacon, all that stuff. I started preaching at the church when I was 13. Um, I did a bunch of sermons. I really got interested in, in Bible translations. So I would go to Books a Million over in Florence when I got my driver's license and just like compare translations of the Bible. Uh, I got my library card when I was like 13, 14, and I would walk or ride my bike to the library in town. And, and we had a very small section on religion, but I would read like whatever I could get you know my, my hands on about the Bible, because I thought it was so interesting. Um, so for me, it was kind of a self-driven thing. So when I got to Wofford, I, I thought I knew everything about the Bible. I've been preaching. People are like, oh, are you going to go be a preacher? And I was like, mm, I mean, I've talked about it, but I kind of want to be a scientist. So I, I was a chemistry computer science major, took an Old Testament class, blew my mind, converted that day, went to the registrar's office, changed from chemistry computer science to religion. And, uh, and then the rest is history. Ended up you know, going to seminary twice and all that stuff. But so for me, it, it was, I'm not going to say it was a calling because I'm. Uh, there's some a mis, mysticism in there. Yeah. But I mean. How it happened and these, and these women who are telling you the stories. Yeah, I know. I know. But so if, because I'm not in a, in a 
parish ministry role. You know, yes, I'm ordained and all that stuff now, but it, for me, it was more like I felt like Gilgamesh trying to fight the monsters to get some notion of immortality or or, or figure out this faith thing, just like Gilgamesh is doing. You know, in in his epic, as he's trying to recover Enkidu. Um, so for me, it's it's more of a it's more of a fight than just I surrender all, Lord. Here I am. Take me now. You know, does that make sense? I've had to do it on my own. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But it's so interesting how these people in, that you encountered led led or invited you or showed you there was a path, and then you, as a thirteen year old, oh wait, our kid's about to be 13. Maybe we'll be invited on another spiritual awakening. Oh, uh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah, because she's an atheist, right? <laughs> she says. Um, I think that she has said that she's a humanist now. Humanist. That's, yeah. wow. You got a little David Hume. That's yes. interesting. So, yeah, she believes in sharing what you have with other people who don't have enough um, and taking care of people. That's, never mind. Anyway, we can talk about that a different day. I'll blame her mother. Um, all right, let's do one more for you and one more for me. How's that? <sighs> okay, let's do it. You have no, to room for 30 other, more minutes. You know, my other show is like 30 minutes tops. And we're, I mean, like, what? I, you, not, you know, we've gone like three hours on the show before. I know no. it's the day, but yeah. All right, uh, let's do. Yeah, I'm going to have to have like a power bar or something next time. If you could talk to your 16-year-old self. No, no. I you want to do that one? What advice would you give to 16-year-old you? Wait, I don't want to talk to her. I'm sure she Goodbye. was very nice. I've seen pictures. She was cute. I mean, not to, you know, not to be. <laughs> she was 16, so underage. So maybe that's not. <laughs> My wife was cute when she was 16. I can say that. Oh. Um, we'll, we'll take that out. I don't know. I don't know what I would say to her. She was so certain of what she knew. And maybe I would say to her. 34-year-old 30, Marianne is still the same. <laughs> there's no certainty. Yeah. Which would maybe unravel her. I think there, uh, I, so I've done a lot of work on the, for me personally, on what I encountered, especially in my teenage years, especially as a woman. And just because of my personality, I was a rule follower. I've heard stories of my siblings doing things that I never considered. Uh, maybe it was family systems, you know, where I fell in the line. But I was always the one who did what was expected and what was right. In, in the view of my parents, but also my religious community. And so there was a lot of pressure that I felt internally there was a lot of anxiety and stress to live up to those expectations that were sometimes voiced and sometimes just felt really heavy, um, especially in regards to sexuality and especially in regards to future and, you know, want, needing to have the desire to get married and have kids because that's what was expected. And so, um, I think that now going back to that person, I would just tell her to keep trying to survive, do what she has to do to survive that environment to get to something else. Um, I, for a long time, I had a lot of disdain for that 16-year-old self because 
she was so close-minded because she was trying to evangelize her friends, which I don't believe in at all um, now. But I think that I heard somebody very wisely say, you can't blame a child for doing what they had to do to survive, right? So if I completely bucked that system, then I would have compromised my sense of home, my sense of family, and there weren't other options. Like I could, there wasn't a place I could go to explore all of that at that point. I don't know if any of this is making sense. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, it, it's the limitation of, of options that certain communities can, can place on young people to keep them sheltered. Right. And I think that we don't allow adult people to forgive the children people they were and doing what they had to do to survive. And so in some ways, was I playing a part? Maybe. Was I playing a part that I felt like was expected of me? Maybe. Was that my true self? No, I don't think so. But I think I was doing what I had to do to get to this side of things. But even at 16, you know, there was, there were some things that I expressed, like, we would have these, we did go on the big youth mission trips and we did do these things. And there were certain things that I was allowed to do and certain things I wasn't allowed to do as a woman. And I can remember bringing some of those questions to people of, well, why not? And so there are still some of that questioning and exploration that would then lead me to express a call to ministry and especially a call to pastor and preach later. So there's evidence for me as I look back that some of that was there and that there was a searching process. It was just not as vocal. It was just not as public. It was very internal. I did a lot of journaling, a lot of journaling, and a lot of like questioning the curriculums that we were given, the lady in waiting, and the how I kissed dating goodbye, and all of those things that people who grew up in the purity movement talk about now, limiting not only their sense of sexuality, but also who they were in general. So... Yeah, so maybe like, uh, you know, there's a big world out there. Go decide what to be and go be it. Well, I would think I would just tell her, keep searching. Keep reading. Keep keep doing the things you're doing. <laughs> It'll lead you somewhere. <laughs> Got to serve somebody. All right. Do you have another one for me or you want me to ask you the last one? Um, I have a big one for you, but it's not, it's not, it's too big for like, it's got to be a whole show. What is that? What is the difference between reader's response and historical critical? <laughs> Again, if episodes one through 150 of the show. Um, I can do that real quick. So, <clears throat> God, I just cleared my throat like Thomas too. Yeah, I know. That, that was you're always his tick. I'm turning into you. Oh, no. You're going to be the funny person. I'm going to be the straight guy. Um, not that Thomas is straight. But anyway, so difference between reader's response and historical critical. I would say that um, reader's response, okay, preface, my lens is historical critical. I went to Wofford College, a small liberal arts Methodist college of about 1,300 students in Spartanburg, South Carolina from 1996 through 2000. I was trained there by wonderful, loving, harsh, uh, old white male professors, three of them one taught Old Testament, one taught New Testament stuff, and the other taught Christian studies, Christian history type stuff. And they all, well, two of them went to Yale in the 1960s and graduated in 1968 and 1969 from Yale with their PhDs. Uh, the other guy went to Emory, graduated in 1972 with his PhD. 
all that to say, my lens from that kind of upbringing is super historical critical, <laughs> right? Uh, we never read anything postmodern uh, or, or you know, any of the, uh, yeah, we, we did some Fiorenza, uh, but, but it was very limited. You know, there was a lot of reliance on Boltmann and, you know, not necessarily Bard, but, you know, a lot of that mid 20th century Harnack type, type stuff, which I still love. So for me, historical critical is always a, a fun place to plant my flag. And Thomas and I used to go back and forth on this on the show, and, and we still do to this day. I'll send him something, and I'm like, see, you know, this is the better way to read it. And he's like, no, no, it's not. Uh, reader's response is a huge, I mean, it's like saying postmodern theology, right? Like it's kind of passe because it is such a big, big thing. Um, and you've got everything from kind of that postmodern project of, of, you know, figuring out the import and the meaning all the way to, you know, feminist critiques and, and gender studies and, and those wonderful things that, that we do need to be doing. Um, but just grossly generally, please don't at me on Twitter. I kind of view it as the ability for the reader to uh, import themselves into the text and interplay with the text in a way that derives meaning without having to artificially construct the text in a way that says, here's objective meaning from the text. Right? Also, I think you would say it's isogetical and the other is exegetical. Yeah. I mean, at the 5,000 foot level. Yeah, I would, you know, like you're, you're trying to bring that meaning out with historical critical. You're doing the same thing with reader's response methods, but it's much more. But you're inserting involved. yourself into the text. You're allowing you for your lens and the lenses of the authors to, to interplay. Yeah. So, so this is a big debate. And, that, and both uh, are, I, I'm just going to say both. I know I joke, but you know, both are completely relevant. My master's from Yale is in, religion and literature, heavily readers response. Um, you know, most of that was in Old Testament studies, but uh, I, I definitely recognize that and, and uh, hear it and, and I still use it in my practice. I'm, I'm preaching this Sunday and it's, it's pretty much a readers response based, you know, response to what? the text. What? Is it going to do this all the time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I'm going to let the text speak for itself and then I'm going to speak and then it's good now. Um, I'm going to dress up as the Grinch and preach and talk about how Dr. Seuss, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's sorry. the meaning of the world. So this oh, is please. interesting because this is uh, something that we debate around our dining room table quite often because I was trained or brought up in reader's response, not only in my fundamentalist background, but also to a certain extent in, in the pastoral studies kind of vein of the program that I attended. So this is uh, a debate that we have back and forth and, yeah, and I'm just saying, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, like, you don't have to go all John Don Dominique Crossan on the text or Bart Ehrman, you know, and make it just about that. Although I love reading and, and listening to those two. Those and two. he will give you those if he feels like you're two readers response. It will stack you up a stack of books to expand your perspective, I think. Um, enlarge your lens is what you said. Yeah, well, and some of that goes back to, again, like, my other emphasis is on, like, Assyrian, you know, Assyriology. And there it's all historical critical. You know, we're trying to reconstruct what, what happened in these kingdoms, you know, and, and from 1200 to 800 BC. So there's, there's a, there is no real reader's response unless you're hopping into, you know, an Akkadian poem or something, which, yeah, you could do. But like the real interesting stuff is just figuring out, you know, what happened. And then like with my book, it was all about kind of the, res the reader's response of that in the 1880s to you know, what they were finding in the deserts outside of Nineveh, you know, so you can interplay in different ways, but yeah. 
but yeah, we, we do have those discussions because I think people throw out historical critical because they think it's it's too, you know, antique and and archaic, but it's really right. not. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good stuff there still. To a certain extent, you feel like you're the um, savior of that movement. That that, that is a, a little bit dying out, right? Especially in the parish world. Well, I'd, I'd say it's it's more entrenched in the parish world because you've got pastors who went through seminary when that was still in vogue, but. In the academic world, I mean, I'm constantly fighting with, with people on Twitter about <laughs> about that, uh, you know, or they want to go back to Bart and be post-Bartian and, and be all theological. But uh, theologians and I don't get along, even though I'm more in that tradition, I guess, than a, an academic. Um, and you're but, married to one. True. So on that note, last question, <laughs> then we got to get out of here. Yeah, we got uh, we got this this a lot. We've covered a lot, a lot in this one episode. We still have 20 minutes left on the on the room schedule, so, you know. Did Greg bring your coffee yet? No. Uh, you should should write him. All right, last question. What pastoral talent do you want to be known for after you've passed on from this life? What? Where are these questions coming from? What a, What is a pastoral talent? I don't know. So you tell me, reader's response. Yeah, I guess I do get to interpret that, right? Um, hmm. I think that I we talk a lot about pastoral authority in the parish ministry about how you earn that, especially as a woman, pastoral authority is the idea that people would grant you a certain amount of expertise or respect or authority to make decisions about the parish or to lead the parish in important discussions. So I've been in parishes where I have been automatically granted pastoral authority, and I have been in parishes where I felt like I had to earn pastoral authority, not because of who I am, but because of the way the pastor position was misused and caused hurt in a congregation. And so I think my hope is that when I pastor, I pastor with pastoral authority that encourages other people to explore and learn and grow. So I hope my pastoral talent, if you want to call it that, would be to strengthen other people's spiritual journeys and lives. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I was waiting for you to unpack that a little bit, but if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. I don't know. I get this is interesting because I'm having my annual review, you know, at my church. So it'll be interesting to see what their perspective is. All right. Anything? I think I, I think I'm going to, I got to get some coffee in. <laughs> All right. I mean, we've revisited my 16 year old self. I've heard stories about these women who were telling you this, the stories of old, like this is a lot to take in a lot. That's, that's why this podcast is so successful. And if you want to continue to uh, hear this podcast and, and support it, you can always go to patreon.com slash thinking religion or thinking FM. Anyway, there's a link. Yeah, buy me some coffee so I can be- Buy Mariana a coffee, please. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, thank you all for listening. As always, we'll be back next week with uh, another episode. We've got some fun stuff ahead in 2020. Um, got a couple of book giveaways, got some- uh, Bible Bracket Challenge goodies for uh, for friends of the show. Again, if you want to be a friend of the show, go support us on Patreon. Uh, send us questions along the way. Send us your thoughts. It's always fun to get those, even if they're rough. Um, <laughs> I, I won't tell that story about the people who don't like our theology on 
Facebook messages. But if, uh, you know, if you've got questions or, or feedback, response, you know where to find us on, on Twitter and Facebook and all those places. Uh, don't text me. Just figure out something else. And yeah, anything else, Mariana? I don't think so. Thanks for inviting so, me on. Yeah. I feel like this is a big seat to fill for Dr. Thomas Whitley, but... He's gone. Think. Forget about him. He's ascended. So now we're, we're having to figure out what to do. <laughs> He's a, is his ghost coming back to haunt us? At the end of times. Uh, At the end of times. He will come back okay, so on a white a horse with a, with a sword in his mouth. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> well, he doesn't listen to the show, so he won't, he won't know. He's never listened. He doesn't listen to any podcast. So yeah. He's the only person that doesn't listen to podcasts. Uh, you can find Mariana's other podcast, Minister and the Mystic, out there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, we'll talk to you next week. See ya. <laughs>